Um, we are so thankful to have all of you here this morning. As Marshall said, my name is Wayne Logan, and I am the campus director here at UK for Campus Outreach, which is a college ministry um, that I came to Christ through, and now I get the pleasure and joy of serving um, on our team here at the University of Kentucky. And so, as Marshall also mentioned, um, I'm halfway through seminary. I'm seeking to eventually be ordained in the PCA, and so he has been very kind and gracious to allow me to preach every now and then um, here to you all. So. I'm very grateful and thankful to get to preach to my own congregation and um, to be one with you guys every week and then every now and then to get to stand up here and proclaim God's word to my favorite people. So today um, we have a long passage, it's Psalm 107. We've already sung it, we've already proclaimed it, we've confessed it together. Uh, I'm going to read it and then we're going to hear from God's word this morning. So join me in Psalm 107, starting in verse 1. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert waste, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the word of God, and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So He bowed their heads down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works for the children of man. He shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He sent out His word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, and tell of His deeds and songs in joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol Him in the congregation of people, and praise Him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there He lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By His blessing they multiply greatly, and He does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, 
He pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But He raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank You so much for Your steadfast love. Lord, as we've already sang and prayed and proclaimed today, Father, Your love really is far beyond what we could dream or imagine. Lord, You have loved us when we are so unlovely. You have showed us grace and mercy and compassion when we deserve none. Lord, like these people who have been enslaved and lost and hungry and thirsty and uh, felt like we were in the middle of the sea because of the storms of life, Lord, You have always been faithful. And again, we ask You this morning to be faithful to Your Word, to teach us from it, to shape our hearts and minds into more like yours. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, as you notice, today's passage is a long one. It's 43 verses. And so, in order to do justice to the entire psalm, I am going to jump straight into our passage. So, I'll save you any fun stories. You can tell me all of yours, and I'll tell you plenty of mine later. But uh, for this morning, I want to get straight to God's work, because that's what matters. So, um, verses 1 through 3 really give us our call to worship and our context for our passage this morning. It begins like this, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. So there's no question. From the very beginning, it is clear what the point of this um, psalm is. It's to tell us all about God's steadfast love so that we would sit in awe and wonder of it. So what is His steadfast love? What has it done? Well, the next verse tells us it is redeemed for himself a people whom he has gathered in from across the world, the east and the west, the north and the south, every corner of God's world he has redeemed his people from. And so this psalm comes shortly after the people of Israel had been in captivity. So they were cast out of their city, their dwelling place that God had prepared for them because of their unrighteousness, their turning from God, and they've been spread to the four corners of the earth as far as they could be from their homeland where God destined them to be they have gone, and now He has brought them back. And so this psalm is penned shortly after the people have returned. The psalmist is looking back and saying, we who have been redeemed by the Lord must proclaim this goodness to the world around us. And so now that they have returned, we see that from the start, the psalm is meant to lead us to worship. Just like these people who have come back to their homeland, we are called to praise God, the Lord who has redeemed us from our troubles, just like His people from hundreds of years ago. And then you can turn to our last verse. This psalm closes with the same command. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Attend to it. Dwell on it. Meditate on God's steadfast love for His people. For you. And so the other 40 verses in the psalm are meant to draw us into that. So the beginning and the end reminds us what the psalm's all about. The middle of it is going to teach us how we do this. And so we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to see God's patience through this psalm. We're going to see His power. And we're going to end with His praise. So let's start with His patience. So here's the story. Have you ever had a friend who, maybe more than one, um, who always comes to you advice, for advice, but never takes it? Uh, they come to you with a question, but what they're really asking you to do is to affirm what they want to do themselves already, and they want you to agree with them. And so you tell them, because you love them, what they really need to hear, not necessarily what they want to hear. And so they nod their head, they agree with you, and then 
they quickly walk out and leave and do the opposite. They do what they want to do the whole time. Well, as I said earlier, I work with college students, so this is my everyday life. Every day, I give wise counsel to 18 and 22-year-olds for them to turn around and do the exact opposite and then wonder why it didn't go well. And so, yes, I'll take your prayers for patience because I need plenty of it. But the point here isn't how foolish our friends are. It's much more about how we respond to them not taking our advice. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I see two options. I either um, just get mad and frustrated with them and think, man, why are they so foolish? Why are they not listening to me, this all-knowing 28-year-old man? Which, of course, they're probably just as wise as me. But um, the other thing I tend to do is that I detach. I ignore them for ignoring my advice. So I say, okay, yeah, that's great. You go do whatever you want to do. When things go bad, you come back to me. I'm just going to wait on you. And the really good news today is that our God doesn't work that way. Praise the Lord, He doesn't just get angry and judge us or get angry and leave us. Instead, He's patient. When we would crush our friends with anger or reject them in abandonment, God is patiently long-suffering. I had a professor one time who said, when God is slow in the Bible, it is always because of His gracious compassion and mercy. Not from a lack of love and care, but in His compassion, He mercifully waits for us to turn back to Him. And we see that both in our own lives and our passages today, that's exactly what happens. That God's patience draws us back to His love. And so look at our four different groups again. Um, if you didn't notice it, the passage has um, a few refrains it repeats, and it goes through four different types of people or four different characters of God's people who have returned from exile. And so the first one's in verse 4. This group is wandering in the desert, looking for a city and finding none. There's no peace. There's no rest. In verse 10, it says some were taken captive as slaves. They're caught up in bonds and yokes of slavery. Verse 17, the third group, they were fools following their own sinful ways and suffered affliction for it. And then finally in verse 23, still others are left starting new lives, seeking after the riches of another country. And each of these groups finds themselves outside of their designed dwelling place. God had promised, delivered, and protected for generations these people that they might dwell there. And yet, over and over, they turn from Him back to the idols of the world, back to foreign gods or to themselves. And so there weren't many, they weren't made to be in these places. Yet here they find themselves exiled in foreign lands. But when we look more closely, we see that God is very near. They feel very far from God. They feel like they've been neglected, that God's turned from them, that He's forgotten about them. But what we see is that God is very, very near. As soon as they come back calling after God to heal them, to re rescue them from their distress, God is already there. He doesn't have to make a long journey back to where they were. He was waiting patiently the whole time. Even though it may have felt like He was far away, He was ready and willing as soon as they returned to Him to bring them back. And so a God who is far off, who has turned His back on His people, doesn't come back when His people cry out. Instead, He would leave them in the bed they made for themselves. He would let them learn their lesson the hard way, but not our God. He tells us a lot about them. He delivers them from their distress, restores them back to right relationship with Him. He doesn't wait on them to fix it themselves. He doesn't give them a 12-step plan. Instead, it says that His patient, steadfast love shines through and redeems them yet again. And doesn't this match what we know? When we think about this passage, when we think about what the Bible says about God, when we think about our own experiences, if you've come to know Him, 
God reveals himself to Moses in this way in verse or in Exodus 34. Moses asks him to see God's glory, and God tells him what he is like. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So he's merciful, he's gracious, slow to anger, abounding, overflowing in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he proves it by how he deals with each of these groups of people. When they recognize the trouble they have found themselves in, they cry out to the Lord, and every single time, he is faithful to deliver them. And so God is patient, abundantly patient. But he's not only patient. Here's your second point. God is powerful. He's able to redeem them in ways that no one else can. Just look how he redeems and rescues each group. The first group, those who wander in the desert, he leads to a city, a fruitful city that has safety and riches. Those who are in darkness and were enslaved, he brings out and bursts forth their bonds. Those who are fools and live in their own sinful ways. He sends out His Word and heals them and redeems them from their destruction. Those who went out to sea who were lost in the storm, He rescues by stilling the storm. He brings them back to their haven safely. And so it wouldn't be enough just to have a patient God. Yes, He is patient. Yes, it's a blessing that He is. But a patient God is not enough. right? A patient God may not punish you. He may have patience. He may be long-suffering but that doesn't mean that He could save you either. So a patient but not powerful God may save you some pain in the short run. He may not bring destruction immediately like we deserve, but over the long haul, your pain only grows deeper and deeper because one, we realize we're in too deep to get out of our sin ourselves. There's no way to get back out. That's when we see, man, I need a Redeemer. I need someone outside of myself to deliver me from where I've got myself into. And we need a God like our God, who's able to do that. Verses 33 through 42 illustrate the same principle. Um, it says, The wicked, those who oppose God and His people, are going to see their luxury and their beauty evaporate. While the needy, the poor, the hungry, His people who are in great need, see their hopelessness reversed. His troubled people see their deserts become pools of life-giving water, so that all who are thirsty can come to it and have rest. The hungry are safe in a city full of food with vineyards and fruitful fields. They have excess. They have more than they need. We see that God even blesses their wombs. They have children. Their people multiply. God's hand is open to them, giving life and joy to everything they need. He provides more and more than they could ever want or ask. But we see the opposite. For those who are wicked, those who refuse to honor God as their God, as the one true God, we see that they reap the harvest they've been sowing by their actions. They've been serving themselves, serving other gods, looking for life in all the wrong places, and what they find is death. Their excess instead becomes want. Their streams, their rivers are turned into waste. The desert now is replaced with what before was a thriving land. So you see, God may be patient, but He will not sit by forever while His people are abused, neglected, or mocked. He will deliver them from their distress. And then, again, it's worth noting, He will do this in His timing. I think very often we put timelines on God and we say, man, if you were faithful, you'd rescue me from this right now. you change my situation right now. And what we see is that our promise in this life isn't that it's going to be comfortable. It's never that it's going to be easy. Instead, the promise is that it will ultimately be worth it. 
the hope we have as followers of Jesus is that in the end, maybe not right now, but in the end we will be delivered from our distresses, the chief one of those being sin, and we will see our Lord face to face. We will look upon the one who has died to give us life, who has exchanged our sinfulness for His loveliness, and we will proclaim how marvelous is His steadfast love, how great are His wondrous works, just like the people from our psalm. And so that's where our sermon's going to end today. Our third point, God's praise, where every one of our life, um, actions, experiences, where all those things, all of our blessings should lead to is praise. The logical yet often forgotten product of God's works in our lives is to return and praise to Him. We all know this is true, right? We've seen over and over again from God's Word that His people praise Him, that when God delivers people, they come forth and give offerings and sacrifices and praise and wonder and awe. And yet, we still find ourselves so caught up in so many other things that demands, that demands our attention that we forget to bring our worship to God for His wondrous deeds. Why is this so? Why are we so quick to ask and yet so slow to think? Well, I think it's oftentimes because we're asking for God's benefits and not really God Himself. Consider what I mean. We do love God, but we also really love what He brings to our life, don't we? The benefits of knowing God are magnificent. Right? Here's just a few. You escape death and hell. You gain entrance into heaven. You have a new community of loving friends, a peace in the midst of suffering, hope in dark times, a fulfilling place to trust your life and work to. All these things are blessings from God, and they are incredible. But they are not God Himself. I know it may feel a little ethereal, um, a little meta to, to think about wanting someone, not just the perks of them, right? That can be kind of hard to understand, but I think really we do get this. And so consider a couple of examples. If you're a parent, think about your love for your children. You don't just love that they obey you. You don't even love that they love you. You just love them. I don't love being a parent and all the things that come with that nearly as much as I love our little girls, Martha and Penny. Right? I love them. That's what I love, not all the extra benefits they bring. Singles is not just the children that we think about this way. Think about your best friends in the world. You don't just love having someone to do your hobbies with. Right? You don't just want somebody to come do these things or play with some cool toys. You love these people, these men and women themselves. Knowing them is what makes all the other stuff so fun, right? It's not any fun to do a really cool thing with someone you don't like. It kind of ruins it for you. But you can do a lot of random, not very fun things with someone you really love and care about, and they can still be really enjoyable. And you can feel that, right? You can feel when it's not true as well. Think about this. Here's a few rhetorical questions. Don't out yourself here. Uh, maybe do that later with your friends or your spouse, but um, consider these. So, have you ever used a cute picture of your child in an Instagram post to get some parent clout or some likes? Do you ever steer conversations toward a really impressive thing you just did so you can brag about yourself and build up your own um, praises and wonder? Have you ever invited yourself to hang out with somebody so you can use their cool things, right? Their boat, their house, some other thing you really like? Well, I guess from the smiles and laughs, you all understand, right? We may have been guilty of one or two of those things. But what's maybe even more scary is that we don't just think about our friends this way, right? We also do the same thing to God. 
We either want to enjoy the benefits of God, all the things we listed before, or we want to make ourselves look really good and holy. So we do all these Christian things. We really only ask God for His benefits, but we really don't want Him. Right? And that's really tricky because we think we want God. But a lot of times when we take a deeper dive into our heart, what we see is we don't really want God. We want all the things that come with having God. We don't really want to stand in His presence and just enjoy being with Him. And that's why, personally, my prayer life has a whole lot more God, will you please fill in the blank than God, thank you for this. God, listen, or I'm listening, God, please speak. Let me hear from you. And so think about the boat example again. Let's make this a little more real. So I've got this great friend, Clark. He's, got a, he's cool. He's got a boat, right? That makes anybody cool, apparently. And imagine I just convinced Clark to hang out next weekend. And I go out on his boat. I come back home. I'm telling my wife, Morgan, about how much fun I had, right? But everything I'm saying is really about the boat. It's not about Clark. It's about his boat. So I praise the boat. I talk about how much fun it was, all the cool things I did on the boat. Um, but I say very little about Clark. Because, again, it was never about Clark. It was about using his cool boat, right? So the same principle applies to our relationship with God. When we're asking him for all the good things he offers, we really think about just having God himself. And so even when he gives us exactly what we want, we may celebrate, but often we don't take the time to stop and thank him, let alone tell others about how God has provided for our needs and our wants. Here's one more example. This is also really personal. So if you uh, know me at all, you've talked to me in the last few weeks, all I've talked about is this stupid van we have. Um, so on our way home from Summer Project, which is a uh, eight-week training program that Camp Sourich does, uh, we were there down in Orlando and driving back, and, and about Jacksonville, we got in a little wreck. When I say little wreck, I mean we totaled our awesome van that we just bought. Um, and I've talked about this van so much. I'm sure everyone around me is so annoyed. But the point is, um, if I've told you about our van, I've done a lot of complaining, right? I've said all these things about how mad I was or how frustrated or how embarrassed or anything like that. But I haven't talked very much about all the good things God did. I didn't talk about how God spared me and my wife and our little girls. Nobody was hurt. No one in any of the seven-car pileup got hurt. I haven't talked about how much my dad and my sister have been helping finding parts to fix up this van because we didn't have any insurance, and now they're spending all their time looking for pieces to fix it. I haven't talked about how God miraculously got our mail. We had to mail a bunch of cash and a key to a tow yard that was a total train wreck, and God got it there right before the people showed up to take our car. I haven't talked about how we left our title and our keys um, in our rental car, and someone randomly brought it to us three days later after they rented that car. And so my point is that I've done a lot of complaining. I've talked a lot about all the hard things, all my personal situations, but I haven't reflected a lot on how good God has been, even through this really frustrating time. And so God did so much more than I could ask for. And all I was concerned about was finding the money to fix our van and how to get it home. So I asked and asked for stuff to make my circumstances better, never thinking or looking how God had provided and met all my needs, proving again and again that I could trust Him as my Father to take care of me and my family, especially when everything was out of my control. You see, what He was doing is He was drawing me in to know Him more, to experience His love, and all I wanted was an easier go of it. 
I just wanted him to fix my circumstances. And instead, he pursued me by making things harder. Because when they got harder and they were out of my control, only he could fix it. And so he pursued me, even though I didn't want him, I just wanted him to fix my situation. And it's in seeing what I've seen all week, reflecting on this, that God's steadfast love for His children, even in the small stuff, will draw us to praise Him. But we have to be looking for Him. Sometimes He makes it abundantly clear. He rescues us from situations that we can see, man, I had no possible way to handle this. Other times, He does it by slowly pursuing us, giving us chance after chance, and we just miss it. So we have to be looking for Him. We have to keep our eyes open, searching for God breaking through into this world, for His transcendence to step in to what's going on here in our mundane, everyday lives. Because it's from these glimpses that will, they will really lead us to praise Him rightly. And it's not just in our quiet thoughts, but before the world and for our friends that that praise will happen. When God has drawn us near, surprised us by His love, He has given us ammunition to tell every square inch of creation that He is placed under our dominion, just how good He's been. And here's what happens when when we do that. When we're faithful to proclaim God's goodness, His steadfast love, we see first that our praises will encourage one another. It will build up God's flock. His people will trust Him more because they've seen it in other people's lives. Second, it will stir the thoughts and wonders of our lost friends. All those people you're dying to see come to know Jesus. When we tell them about how God has been good to us, it makes Him more and more lovely in their sight. And then thirdly, most importantly, it will create in us a heart that longs for more of God. Not just His benefits, but time and nearness with Him. What we need more than everything else. And so here's my one final application tonight, or this morning. As you may have noticed, it looks like outer space outside. I don't know if you, maybe you were in a hurry and you didn't see that, but there's like rocket ships and outer space and stars and all kinds of crazy stuff out there. That's because, as we talked about, we have VBS VBS starting tomorrow. And so Morgan and her team have been grinding, organizing all the different pieces and parts that make VBS work, and it's going to be awesome. But one of the really cool things um, that none of you know about yet, but you'll find out if your kids come or if you volunteer this week, is that there's a moment um, each morning when VBS starts where the kids and the leaders come together and they have these um, God sightings. And so it's a time for each person to reflect on the last week or the last day and think about where they have seen God or His hand in creation, in people, in different moments from their day. And I think that all of us need some God sighting time too. So I think the best application today from this sermon is probably to find a way to do this in your own life or in the life of your family. Find a way to reflect and share the moments when transcendence has broken through into your world, where you have seen God or His hand visibly by the actions of others, by His um, preservation, His uh, provision, anything that He has done in your life that is abundantly clear. Man, God was at work here. We need to remember those things. We have to recall them. Because in the moments when it feels like you don't see Him, if you have concrete things to look back on, say, man, I know God's here. I know He's been faithful. I've seen it happen. Man, that'll get you through the suffering. And so it could be anything. It could be a journal entry each day for those of you who really like to think about your day. It could be maybe just a question you ask at the dinner table with your roommates, your family. 
Um, there was a guy at the church I grew up in who had this huge pile of rocks in his yard, and he would just move the rocks back and forth every time he saw something God did. And so maybe it's something that small. But really, the idea and the point is to get us thinking about, man, where have I seen God in this week, in this day, in this person? Because it will stir our loves and affections. And we'll experience this steadfast love we've been singing about all morning, more and more, as we see it in our own lives. And so get creative. Ask others for an idea, but please give it a try today. That's my, my uh, request, my application. Find a way to keep track of some of the ways God is showing up in your life and that you have seen His steadfast love in action. And I promise I won't return void. And volunteer for VBS. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You so much where we stand in awe of Your love, Your care for Your people, where the You have broken through the God of the universe who spoke all these stars that we see at night into existence. All the countless universes and planets and or things that we can't even understand or grasp. You spoke them into existence, and yet you have stepped into the world you made to suffer and die for people like us. Lord, we are just like these people. We have been foolish in our own sin. We have sought life and happiness outside of you. We have been slaves to so many other things. And Lord, you have offered us yourself that we would know you. Lord, you have provided everything we need that we can stand before you having nothing and yet in possession of everything because of your son, Jesus. I thank you for your word that you've taught us by that you give us life that we can see you through it. I pray that we would see you in countless other ways this week, that we would praise you for it, that we would proclaim that goodness to others, and that you would stir our affections for you, not just your things. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.